Well, thank you, Miller Six, for such a great uh, testimony. It really is a, a perfect setup for what we're going to talk about. They said that their lives were changed. Um, and really, I think another way to describe that from, from the biblical perspective is that you were transformed by the renewing of your mind. I would guess that each of you would say that you see life differently now, don't you? You, you see it from an eternal perspective, from God's eye view. And I believe that is the goal for every single follower of Jesus Christ. How that is accomplished takes a lot of different forms, but many times it takes place when we do something that's a little bit risky, that puts us outside of our normal comfort zone uh, so that God can uh, have our attention in a unique way. And I believe that's what you heard this morning. And encourage us all to uh, hear and learn and, and follow that example. Um, there's a verse in... Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we're all very familiar with, where Paul admonishes us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That word transformed is interesting in the original language. It's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is identified, it identifies something that uh, has a complete change in both appearance and character. And I bet for most of us, when we hear that word, we can't help but think back to the science class and remember that description as it describes the change that takes place with a butterfly. An insect who, in the process of metamorphosis, changes from this chubby little caterpillar who crawls on leaves and plants under the weight of gravity to then become this beautiful brilliantly colored butterfly that seems to defy gravity as it floats on the air. Without a question, when we think about the metamorphosis of a butterfly, there is an undeniable change in the character and appearance of that insect. An amazing change that I think all of us would agree with. But it is a change that is none more dramatic than the metamorphosis that takes place in our mind when we turn from the ways of the world and put our faith and trust, as you said, in the transforming love of Jesus Christ. Just as that caterpillar builds a cocoon and sheds its skin to reveal this new creation of a butterfly, so too do we put off the old things to reveal the new creation of who we are in Christ. And Paul describes it to the Ephesians this way when he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now that's quite a metamorphosis, a transformation of the mind, shedding of the old self and, and putting on the mind of Christ. In our passage this morning, Peter will give us a unique view of that contrast between a mind that is transformed by God's Spirit and one that is conformed to the world. His description gives us an understanding of the difference between a sanctified mind 
or, or having the mind of Christ and the secular mind or, or having a mind of the world. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we pray together as a family that we might, in this time that we open your word, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That your spirit would have its way within us to shape us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. That we might exhibit in our life attributes of a holy God. That we may be holy as you are holy. But we recognize together, Father, that that is not accomplished by something that we do on our own. We are to be transformed. In your hands, for your good purposes. Father, will you do that this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and open up to Second Peter chapter 3, where we left off last. As we look at our passage this morning, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Peter shifts his attention. He has spent the whole of chapter 2 focused on the false teachers. And now he turns his attention to to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And and his language reflects that change. If you would, follow along with me beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water and through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, destruction of ungodly men. What I'd like for us to do this morning is to examine our passage with the the desire to understand the difference between a sanctified mind and a secular mind. Knowing as we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind that there's a battle going on. That there's a battle of the mind. And the question is, are we viewing life and life's decisions with the sanctified mind of Christ, or are we being carried away by the worldly influence of the secular mind? That's the question that I want you to have in mind as we go through our passage this morning. And so, to begin with, let's start with the attributes of the sanctified mind. There seems to be three that are evident in this passage that I would like to highlight they are the sanctified mind being that which is peaceable that which is biblical and that which is spiritual 
right off the bat, we, we see the, the peaceable nature of the sanctified mind in the way that Peter speaks to his reader. His affection is quite obvious in the verse as he de- identifies them as my beloved. This is quite a shift if you read this in the context of the letter as a whole because those previous verses had this emotional tenor that seemed to escalate with each new characteristic of the false teacher. They malign the truth, Peter says. They exploit the weak with false words. They despise authority and count it a pleasure to revel without guilt. These false teachers speak arrogant words of vanity. They're slaves of corruption and willingly wallow in sin as a pig wallows in the mud. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, as if to to pause and take a deep breath, he, he turns to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, but you, my beloved, that's not who you are. The sanctified mind knows the difference between the enemy and the ally. And his speech reflects that understanding. That's why Paul writes later in that Romans chapter 12 that I referenced earlier. He he says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The language of that simple verse is pregnant with meaning. The word devoted describes a a warm affection, an affection like that shared between those who are part of a family. When Paul tells us to give preference to one another, he's literally telling us to outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, when our minds are sanctified, the only competition that exists between us as brothers and sisters in Christ is when we compete to see who can genuinely value the other more. I think we see that in the words that Peter chooses as he speaks to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I'm stirring up their sincere mind. The word sincere is a word of honor. Our English Bible translates that word sincere from the Latin word sine sera, which means without wax. You see, in ancient times, a potter would use wax to cover up the the cracks or defects in the pottery that he made. Much like I might use wood putty to cover up nail holes or scratches in a piece of furniture that I might make. And so in those ancient times, when you bought a piece of pottery, what you would do is you would hold it up to the sun to reveal whatever cracks may exist in that vase you were purchasing. It was said to have been sun-judged. Well, that's the exact same Greek word that Peter uses in this phrase. He literally says, I am writing to stir up your sun-judged minds. Isn't that beautiful? He's building them up because of who they are in Christ as fellow believers, like him, being transformed in the renewing of their minds. Their minds have been sun-judged. S-O-N. Peter understands that he doesn't have to be the Holy Spirit in someone's life when the Holy Spirit indwells them. 
That's why he said earlier in the letter, I'm writing to remind you of things that you already know to be true. How does he know that? Because the Spirit of God is the teacher in the hearts of those who follow Christ. This is the sanctified mind at work. It is peaceable and gentle, giving preference to one another in honor. It understands who the enemy is and it seeks to to build up fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The person who has the mind of Christ is committed to not letting any unwholesome word proceed from their mouth, but only that which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. But we also see in Peter's example that the sanctified mind is a biblical mind. If we look at the passage, he reminds his brothers and sisters in Christ of the words spoken by the holy prophets as well as those spoken by the apostles as they learned them from Jesus himself. So as you look at that, what did Peter just describe? He said, the revelation of God through the holy prophets and the revelation of God through Jesus and his apostles. What is that? It's the Bible, isn't it? It's Scripture. It's, it's the Old Testament and the prophets, the New Testament, and Jesus and the apostles. Because the sanctified mind is a biblical mind. What we believe is not based on the opinions of others or the philosophy of the day. The sanctified mind grows in wisdom through a growing understanding of God's revealed word. In fact, that's what gives discernment to the sanctified mind. We understand when something is true by lining it up to the absolute truth of God's word. It it takes away the fear of the unknown. Because we are convinced that his word gives us all that we need to know. The sanctified mind is a biblical mind. As he reads God's word to be wise. As she obeys God's word to be safe. And as he practices God's word to be holy. But that holiness doesn't come from things that we accomplish on our own but instead from the presence of the Holy Spirit, because the sanctified mind is a spirit-filled mind. The spiritual mind is a mind that is dependent upon Christ, knowing that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Like Jesus, the mind of Christ seeks to do the will of the Father instead of His own will. He is willingly obedient to the submission of, of God's authority in his life. That's because God is highly exalted in those who have a sanctified mind. They have the attitude that that John the Baptist had when speaking of Jesus and he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's what David had in mind when he wrote in the psalm, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Those are words spoken from a sanctified mind. A mind that always maintains a high view of God and exalts him above all things. It is a mind that is hardwired for worship. Now, I'm just like you, and I admit that there are times that that's not where my mind is. But, but like you, I, I get lost in, in the details of, of daily life. But I'm learning, hopefully like you are as well, that the more that our mind is transformed, the more our heart is inclined to worship. It, it reminds me of a great quote from A.W. Tozer. He says this, The purpose of God, listen closely, this is so, so good. The purpose of God in sending His Son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that He might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a sanctified mind. But the secular mind looks different. Instead of being peaceable and biblical, and spiritual. The secular mind is prideful, and selfish, and worldly. We see that clearly in our passage when Peter describes in verse 3, mockers who come with their mocking. The one who mocks is making light of something that should be taken very seriously. And in the case of these false teachers, they are making light of the return of Christ and to the point that they're saying it's not going to happen. <laughs> Good grief, people. Would you quit being so naive? He hasn't come by now. He's not going to come at all. Just lighten up a little bit and learn to live life. But Peter says in verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. The words Paul uses here are very intentional. They're used to describe those who purposefully disregard important information in order to fabricate lies. In other words, what escapes their notice is an intentional neglect of the obvious. The example Peter gives is God's sovereign control in creation and the overwhelming judgment in the flood. Those are the examples he gives. I would say that those are truths that are pretty hard to miss, wouldn't you? Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. I like his words. He says, They conveniently forget that long ago all the galaxies and this very planet were brought into existence out of a watery chaos by God's, and I would say, spoken word. Then God's word brought the chaos back in a flood that destroyed the world he created. Such small details. Creation of the world, destruction of the world by the flood. But when you're trying to build a case on lies, you have to leave out 
important pieces of truth. That's what the secular mind does. It, it picks and chooses what it's willing to believe. If it doesn't fit his theology, his, his view of God, and just leaves it out. That's because the secular mind is prideful. It's a mind that says, I don't need to know that. Or, or that's not important. Or what we hear very commonly in our world today, that's not relevant anymore. It's like Isaiah says, when he writes of people even in his day who were carried away by that secular mind, he says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he didn't make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? You see, a secular mind usurps the authority of God by choosing instead to follow the ways of man. To the point, as we see in our passage, that they make light of the ways of God in order order to elevate their own prideful, deeply flawed, finite understanding of our purpose in life. Because there's always within that secular mind the hidden motivation to always have some sort of personal gain in mind. In other words, the, the secular mind is inherently selfish. And Peter makes that clear in verse 3 when he reveals their behavior, the behavior of these false teachers as those which are based on a desire to follow after their own lusts. The secular mind promotes an agenda of the way they want things to be instead of seeking to understand the way God says it should be. This insulting demeanor is seen in their mocking. They look down at others and say, oh, come on, what are you, stupid? That's an age-old strategy of the secular mind. Putting others down in order to, to lift yourself up. Making what other people say seem silly and other to make what you say seem really smart. That's the secular mind. But there's one more very important feature we see in this passage in regards to the secular mind. You see, unlike the sanctified mind that exalts God above all things, the secular mind minimizes God and His divine intervention in our lives. It's that me-first mentality where we become convinced that it's all about me. My comfort, my happiness, my success. The secular mind cannot find God because it's too busy promoting self. I become the center of my universe and, and God is important only as He helps me accomplish my desires. And, and left to itself, the secular mind will eventually squeeze God out altogether. Just this month in the New York Times, I read an article by a man who claims to be a follower of Christ. And in this article, he condemns what I believe to be some of the very basic orthodox views of Christianity. To the point that he goes on and suggests, and I quote, the Bible does not condemn evolution and says next to nothing about gay marriage. He says, Christian theology can incorporate Darwin's insights and flourish in a pluralistic society. 
insights from Darwin, which I assume should include the idea that everything in nature does not exist because of a sovereign creator, but instead because of fixed laws of nature. It's the very point that Richard Dawkins picks up in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, when he says this, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. It's a perfect example of the secular mind because left to itself, it eventually squeezes divine intervention out of the picture altogether and leaves no room for God. It's the very argument of the false teachers in our passage. They said in verse 4, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What they're saying is, God's not involved because nothing's changed. It's the same as it's always been. And this attitude has, has always prevailed in the secular mind. You can go back as far as the, the prophet Malachi, as he speaks of the people in his day who were carried away by the secular mind. And he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or... Where is your God of justice? You see, the secular mind throughout the ages has argued that that God is absent or uninvolved in the world. And, And by limiting God, they give mankind the unlimited freedom to fulfill fleshly desires. The the sanctified mind is is peaceable and biblical and spiritual. The secular mind is prideful, selfish, and worldly. Remember the question? Which one best describes you? In some ways, this goes back to our discussion last week of being carried away, making sure that we don't lose our identity of who we are in Christ. Because make no mistake, this is a battle. And there is no more important battle, I believe, than the battle of the mind. And the reason I say that is because what you believe dictates how you live. And Peter writes this letter as we read it with a sense of urgency. You, you feel that as you read this letter. Because he wants to make sure that sanctified minds are not carried away and influenced by the false teaching of a secular world you see that happens to even us today when we ignore the truth of god's word or when we just simply neglect to to spend time in god's word or maybe we just pick and choose what we want to take away from god's word so that it fits the way that we want to live our life it's really easy for us to ignore the promises their promises of persecution and tribulation in favor of peace and prosperity. We want the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but we don't always want to 
apply the diligence and discipline in order to obtain it. See, that's the battle we need to fight. If we don't, the secular influence causes us to put words in God's mouth. (laughs) To make Him say things that He, I promise you, never said. Let, Let me give you an example. It's okay for me to get divorced. God wants me to be happy. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. Or it's okay for me to cut corners now and then because God wants me to be successful. You see, that's not what he said. You're putting words into God's mouth. That's the influence of a secular mind at work. We also see this influence when we start to believe that it's all about me. Now, nobody in this room would disagree with the fact that that secular mind surrounds us in our world today, doesn't it? And if we're not careful, we'll end up believing it. I think personally one of the best ways to determine if you're falling into that trap is by looking at your response to inconvenience. Now, that could be as simple as getting behind somebody in the left lane on the loop who's driving a little bit slower than the posted speed limit and is driving you crazy. And so what do you do? You throw up your hands, you yell at them as if they could hear you, you speed around them at the, at the twice the speed of sound, giving them this look that lets them know, you have really inconvenienced me. <laughs> but you've probably never done that before, have you? How do you respond to inconvenience? When it's all about me, in the convenience it is to my time, we are upset when things don't happen like we want them to. Just watch how you respond to when you're inconvenienced. Maybe it's when you get a call during the World Series game, (laughs) right? Did that hit a little close to home? Or maybe it's the call, or maybe you're working in your office. I struggle with this, and somebody walks in that I wasn't expecting. Or maybe you're at home doing things around the house, and somebody comes to your front door. How do you respond when you're inconvenienced? When the world revolves around me, interruptions and inconveniences are often unacceptable. They make us upset. They make us angry. It's the attitude that says, I'm all for helping others just so long as it doesn't inconvenience me. That's the influence of the secular mind. And if we're not careful, the influence will carry us away to a place where God is absent at worst or just uninvolved at best. This is our mindset when Sunday is the only day that we give God our undivided attention. And then Monday through Saturday, we don't give it a second thought. God becomes a a distant deity that is unconcerned with the details of our daily life. That is a secular mind. At work. But when we're in Christ, a metamorphosis takes place in our mind. What was once secular now becomes sanctified as we put off the old self and we put on the mind of Christ. A God fashioned life that is renewed from the inside and then works outwardly through our conduct as God reproduces his character. In us. It's way too easy 
to be carried away by the compromise unless, as Peter has said several times in this letter, unless we are diligent, unless we are stirred up, unless we are reminded of what we're here to live for. I believe that's what you guys got a picture of. You understood what life is all about. Our purpose on earth. In our passage this morning, Peter said that this was his second letter, right, that he wrote. I want us to turn to his first letter that I believe helps us understand this perspective. Turn to 1 Peter, just go left a few pages, chapter 1, verse 13. Follow along with me, chapter 1, verse 13, where Peter says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I call this living with the end in mind. It says, fixing your hope completely, not partially, not sometimes, but completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, living with the end in mind. What a difference that would make in our daily lives if that was our perspective. You see, God is not some distant deity. We know that because He chose to become personally involved in our lives when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When He who breathed life into the universe came to live among His creation. In fact, He became so intimately involved that He willingly sacrificed His life for the forgiveness of your sins. And my sins. He didn't sit back and let things just take a natural course. You and I both know that would have been disastrous for all mankind. Instead, he personally intervened and changed the course of all life and all eternity for those who put their faith and trust in him. We have a salvation in in Jesus Christ. But it's really not complete or not fully realized until he comes again. That's why Peter, or excuse me, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, for we have seen in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, just as we have been fully known. See, the secular mind gets lost in the details of today, trying to manage life in their own strength. The sanctified mind lives with the end in mind, believing firmly that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, draw near to Jesus. Be transformed. Be changed. Be made new. Have the mind of Christ, a mind of self-control and holiness. Fight the battle of the mind so that we're not conformed by the evil desires of the world. But know this, and hear this clearly. The victory in this battle begins with 
surrender. Surrender. Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. Humility before God is where we find our greatest strength. That in mind, let me encourage you, let me challenge you, let me admonish you to make this week, just set aside in your heart today, right now, to make this week a week of worship. That every day you're mindful and you exalt the holiness of our God. As Tozer reminded us, seek to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in beauty and holiness. To spend our time in, in awesome wonder and adoration of God. Feeling and expressing it. And letting it get into our labors. What we do on a day-to-day basis. Doing nothing except as an act of worship to the Almighty God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Live with the end in mind. Let's pray together. God, I pray for myself and for everyone here that that would be our heart. I pray that the commitments made today to live each day with a heart of worship would be fulfilled. That our minds would gravitate towards you, our great and holy God. That maybe we walk out at night and we see the stars and we realize that you breathed them into existence. Maybe we take time to just stare at our children and realize that they were created, knit in the womb by your holy hand. Maybe we think about what the Millers shared with us this morning and we realize that those orphans are not forgotten. That you know them by name. That you love them deeply and that you call us to be conduits of that love to a sick and dying world. Father, I pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Putting off the old self and putting on the mind of Christ. To be peaceable and biblical and spirit-filled in all we do to the praise of your glory. Amen.